0: Back in the days when I was in graduate school at Princeton Seminary, I heard the story of a couple that had checked in one day into the famous Nassau Inn at Princeton. They had managed to go through the check-in process and turned around to go to their room when they spied a rumpled old-looking gentleman who they took as the bellhop, and the the husband in the couple barked at him, "Uh, hey, can you take our bags here and up to our room? We're ready to go. And the gentleman kindly complied, went over, picked up their bags, shuffled along and up to their room. And at the door to the room, the room was open. He brought the bags on the inside, and the husband reached into his pocket, pulled out his wallet, flipped out a couple of bills, and handed it to the uh, bellhop, who strangely, politely declined to take any of the bills at all and wished the couple well and then went upon his way. The couple never knew that that wasn't actually a bellhop at all. He wasn't even an employee of the hotel. He was a local resident that just happened to be passing through the lobby at that particular moment. And his name was Albert Einstein. (laughs) When we read the story in John's Gospel today about the encounter of Mary with the person she thought was the gardener, it looks to be a similar kind of story, doesn't it? Yet I want to suggest to you that it is exactly the opposite kind of story, that this is history's greatest story of unmistaken identity, that when Mary met this man, she was indeed, meaning, the ultimate kind of gardener. And I want to think about how that happens to be so and why it makes a difference in your life and in mine before I let you go on your way today. I think that if you didn't have much time on your hands and you had to only read a few passages of Scripture, there are three stories in particular you should bother to read. Everything that you'd find in these pages is valuable, but there are three stories that are really worth your time in terms of understanding all of what God seeks to have us know. And they are the three stories about the gardener's hands. Make sure you're familiar, have read the three stories about the gardener's hands. Now, the first of those stories we encounter at the very beginning of the big book. In fact, if you want to grab your Bible and open to it, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis give us the first picture. That's important to take in. This is a story, the Bible tells us, about who God is, what God has created and intended for life to be, and what went wrong. Now, if you think about it, there aren't too many things more important than than that spread of ideas. There's not much more important than knowing where you came from, what your life is meant to be about, and how you could get off track if you weren't careful, right? Right? Every loving parent tries to communicate that to their kids. How many of you are parents? How many of you had parents? All right, all of us. I thought we were together in this. They're always trying to tell us this. They want us to know our history. They want to know who we're from. They want us to know what life is really meant to be about so we can live into its potential. And they want to warn us against what could go wrong so we just don't miss out on the goodness. God is a loving parent like that. He wants us to understand that large picture and context. So he could have done this in a whole variety of ways, right? He could have explained this to us uh, in many different uh, terms. He could have, for example, done it in theological or philosophical terms. Uh, I imagine God could have said something like this. Life, my friends is about the ontological effulgence of the divine triunity which manifests itself phenomenologically to facilitate our epistemological encounter with the teleology that is made evident in the cosmic etiology atonement and coming eschaton. He could have said that. It would have been accurate. More accurate than you can probably figure out. But God does not communicate the nature of life to us in philosophical and theological terms. As Jesus shows us, God does not want to bore us like that. God is not into boring people. Alternatively, God might have explained the the big picture of life in scientific terms. Uh, He might well have spoken of subatomic particles and of the ten dimensions of string theory. and and of how all that we're discovering now through our scientific inquiry is simply confirming what scriptures have said all along about the nature of life as not fundamentally material but energized relationship and how this great energy permeates all things and how God is at work and there's an order and an intelligence and a design that that no amount of random interaction could ever possibly account for. God could have said, this is the world in which you're living. But God does not explain things in scientific terms because he wants kids to get the big picture. He wanted primitive cultures to understand the big picture of what life is all about. And so in his infinite kindness, in God's wonderful kindness, He chooses to explain the world to us in an image that almost anybody, any culture, any context can understand. And this is how he does it. He says, think of life as a garden and of me as the gardener and of you as my helpers. And this is where the whole story begins. Now, when we go into the opening pages of Genesis, the first three chapters, we get a picture of God as a being who likes to go into barren places, actually goes into a place that is formless and empty, and scatters the seed of life, just looking forward to seeing what will come of that. It portrays God as a being who is intimately involved with what he is creating. It has him literally scooping his hands into the good earth and running it between his fingers and breathing into what he is making. It pictures that God as walking through the garden and talking with its inhabitants because he knows, as the inhabitants will eventually forget themselves. That this communion with him, the creator, the great gardener, is absolutely essential to their flourishing, to their doing well. And so we get that image in these opening chapters. Genesis also shows us God delegating power to people as his helpers. Uh, It shows us, um, shows God giving uh, a role as helpmates to uh, the people of the garden. They are to be helpmates to one another. They are to give names to things. They are to tend the garden. They are to exercise a gracious dominion over everything within their reach. As the second century bishop Irenaeus once put it, the glory of God is a human person fully alive. That's what, God, that's what brings joy to God, is seeing people living to the full potential, thriving in every conceivable way. This is what the Bible teaches. So let me just wrap up this little part by helping us get this. You and I came from this brilliant being, this magnificent creator, who is something like a gardener in a sense that he cultivates, he creates, he cultivates life, longing to see it flourish. And we have been made in his image. Have you heard that phrase before? You're made in the image and likeness of God. This is what it means. God has made you so that you too would exercise creativity and cultivation of this earth that God has made. You're meant to take, and I'm meant to take, all of the seeds, the tools, the personality, the skill sets, the experiences, the education, the the credentials, the relational network you have. You're meant to take all of these things in your gardener's tool set and use them to bring about flourishing throughout the creation to help every person you meet become who they can be and to shape this world in a way that reflects the glory of God. But the first story here also tells us about what ultimately went wrong with this wonderful picture. Okay, it it describes how it went off the tracks. Genesis says that human beings bought a lie plain and simple. We bought into this lie that we could have thriving without communion with the Creator. We could take it from here, God, was sort of the the lie that we bought into, that we don't need intimacy with you in order to flourish. Uh, We also bought this idea that the boundaries that God sets are not something we really have to pay attention to that we can pretty much set all of our own rules and we'll be fine. We will continue to thrive and flourish. And Genesis depicts humanity losing that primary generative intimacy with God and then that ripples out to start wrecking the intimacy between man and woman and people. And then that ripples out even to the point where we don't even know ourselves and we're lost ourselves individually and God has to ask Adam, where are you? We see human beings over the course of the next pages of Genesis using their God-given uh, abilities to pursue the fleeting kind of control and the thin sort of significance and the sort of passing variety of, of comfort that, that idols can give, but are so much less than what God wants to give his children. And this first biblical story helps us understand how the great garden that God began became something of a wilderness, uh, the wilderness that it is in too many places today. Now, thankfully, there are still garden spots, right? There are garden spots, I know, because I can see the tan on some of you. You've been there at spring break, uh, which is good. You know, God has given us an ability to carve out these little pockets of flourishing. But we must never let each other settle into thinking that these little pockets uh, uh, of vacation, of comfort, you know, uh, uh, the latest tech toy, um, 50 shades of bondage or beer, you know, (laughs) all the things that are being peddled to us as flourishing, we must never settle for thinking this is all that's possible and all that we were really made for. Brothers and sisters, we are children of paradise. (laughs) We are the children of the great God of this glorious universe. He's given us a role to play in the sweep of history, in the bringing into being of the life of his kingdom, in creating flourishing for all people, everywhere, in each corner of this earth. We must not forget our identity, where we came from, what we were meant for, and what ultimately went wrong. Talk about mistaken Identity, sometimes we think it's all about comfort, significance, and control. Uh, what a mistake. That's not our identity. So every time you find yourself these days watching on the television news those barren wastelands that ISIS and ACAP are ruling over and calling good, uh, every time you drive through one of our, our ravaged, uh, blighted communities uh, here in beautiful Chicagoland, every time you see a building burning or a riot raging, or you see yourself uh, looking into the eyes, the hollow eyes of some child who's lost in some place of desperation, every time you hear another indicator that uh, there's more environmental damage than we'd done last year, or you see people in our schools and our governments and our workplaces or our streets treating each other as enemies, as rivals, when we are actually brothers and sisters, common creators, cultivators of this glorious earth. Every time you confront the hard-baked ground of your own character, and if you don't see it in yourself, look at your wife or your husband or your neighbor, you'll see the hard-baked ground. Every time you confront these things, please remember the gardener. Remember from whom you've come remember for what you've been made, and remember how it went wrong. But you know what? It will not always be wrong. It is not always going to be this way. And I said earlier that there are three stories that take place in a garden that are worth really knowing. And this is where the second one comes in. In the very last three chapters of the big book, we get the second story. It's in Revelation chapter 20, 21, and 22. And I want to read just a portion of that text for you today uh, as it's voiced by the Apostle John, who, by the way, was the faster runner in the earlier story because this is the vision God gives him many years later. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God. And on each side of that river stood the tree of life. Remember that? That was the tree that was back in the garden at the beginning. And now it's on both sides of the river, and it's bearing 12 crops of fruit. And in the Bible, when you run into the number 7 or the number 12, it means fullness. It means completion. It means perfection. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. There's going to be something about what happens there that's going to heal everything that's been going wrong, even across the nations. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, and it said, look, God's dwelling place is among people again. Once again, among people. Once again, God's walking through the garden with people. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death Or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, and he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making everything new. The gardener is making it new again by the power in his hands. That is the future. That is where world history is moving, as hard as it may be to see it in the midst of this moment in time. The Russian philosopher Nicholas Berdyev once suggested that this, this vision of what is coming is something, is why something in every human heart surges when we encounter beauty. It surges when we encounter the beauty of a glorious springtime, for example, All beauty, says Berdiev, in the world is either a memory of paradise or else a prophecy of the transfigured world. It's a memory of the first story or a vision of the last story. All beauty is calling up in us, that longing for Eden. And one day, the gardener is going to restore the creation to its original goodness and glory, and all of the The misuse of power that's gone on, that we've sometimes participated in ourselves, all of the idolatry and the infamy and the coercion and the violence and the injustice that's all over our newspapers, it's going to come to an end. And on that day, all of the damage that has been done by disease and birth defects and accidents and tragedies and and broken individuals and corrupt institutions, it's going to be undone. It's going to be made as if it had never happened. And like the ultimate springtime, emerging from the longest winter of all, life will become a garden again by the power in God's hands, and it sounds to me pretty good. How about to you? I think it actually sounds pretty great. Uh, Raise your hand if you're a little tired of winter. Yeah, raise both hands if you would love to be in paradise. Yeah. We would. But how do we know this isn't just a fantasy? How do we know this isn't just wishful thinking? How do we know we can trust what the Bible has to say about God's power to restore all of life? Well, that is where the third story comes in. But before I get to that, let me tell you a minor one. Author Ken Davis tells the story of a woman who was working in her kitchen sink one day, cleaning up, when she happened to look outside and through her kitchen window into the backyard and saw her German shepherd dog with um, the neighbor's pet rabbit in its mouth, and he was shaking the life out of the little bunny. And she just went, ah! she dropped everything she was doing. She ran out the kitchen door and into the backyard and she beat the dog and kicked the dog until finally he dropped, you know, the unfortunate creature. But it was too late. The, the bunny was stone dead. And the woman just went, oh, I can't believe this. You see, she had a miserable relationship with her neighbors. Uh, I mean, and this was going to like put the death nail into that relationship. Uh, and she panicked. And so she scooped up the carcass of this, of this little creature, and she goes back into her house, and she decides she's going to wash it. So she begins to wash this thing. Now, this is a dirty... And this is, there's all kinds of dirt and little bits and grit all over. There's dog saliva on this creature. She washes it completely. She combs out all of the, this detritus uh, from the fur, and she decides to take a blow dryer. And She takes the blow dryer to the bunny, and she starts puffing, and she, by golly, that thing is looking fluffy again. And then she thinks, I know what I'm going to do. She waits till darkness falls. She sneaks next door. She goes into the backyard of the neighbor, and she, she puts the bunny back into the cage. She closes the door. She's propped him up nice. and closes the door, and she goes home. Well, about an hour passes by, she's back at home, and she hears these screams coming from the neighbor's backyard, and she goes, oh, no. She figures she better look like she's concerned. She runs next door. She goes in the backyard, and there they are. They're just, they're apoplectic, and she says, what's wrong? And they said, it's the rabbit. He, he died two weeks ago, and we buried him, and now he's back. My friend John Ortberg connects that little tale to to the Easter story with the following comment. He says, you know, people in the ancient world knew that dead rabbits tend to stay dead. And they also knew that dead rabbis stay that way also. Think about it. N.T. Wright, a wonderful current uh, rock star of New Testament studies, reminds us of this. There were many messianic movements in the first century. I bet you didn't know that. There were tons of them. They were happening all the time during the first century. Uh, These leaders who would rise up and claim that they were the anointed ones that were going to lead Israel out of bondage to Rome. Every single one of those messianic leaders wound up the same way. They were all crucified by the Romans. They were were all put to death as violators of the peace of Rome in in, in that land. And and N.T. Wright reminds us, as the result of his historical study, that in not one other case do we hear the slightest mention of the disappointed followers claiming that their hero had been raised From the dead, not once in all of those other uh, movements. Why? Because they knew better. Why? Because dead rabbis, like rabbits, stay dead. And yet, here is where the third story is so unusual. It's told in the last three chapters of John's Gospel, and these are the facts. The carcass of the dead rabbi, the one that had been buried, had now disappeared. Despite the fact that armed guards had been posted at the entrance to the tomb, trained trained officials whose, whose jobs and indeed lives depended on exercising uh, protection of that site, uh, lest somebody come in and steal the body and propagate some kind of a hoax, in spite of all that, The body had gone. Secondly, the grave clothes that the body had been wrapped in were undisturbed. In other words, the body didn't go, if somebody stole it, miraculously how? We don't know. If they stole it, they took the time to unwrap it. And what's more, from the account in John's gospel, it sounds like the the clothes were still wrapped up, lying on the ledge where they had been, where the body had been, the headdress, at a little distance from the body, as was the custom, a turban would have been put on the dead body, and they were left in place almost as if a body had just dematerialized from inside of them, almost like a butterfly had discarded a chrysalis. Thirdly, not only was the dead rabbi not found, not put back in the cage at any further point uh, down the road, but Mary and hundreds of Hundreds of others swore they had seen Jesus alive. I mean, not just fluffed up, okay? I mean, like alive at a level that life for them, okay? They had met him. They had put their fingers in the wounds of his hands, in his side. They sat with him. They talked with him. They ate with him. They walked with him. This happened over a period of many, many days. Not one single kind of passion-filled hallucination. I mean, hundreds of people who all claim to have had a very tangible experience with the living, risen Lord Jesus Christ. And and one evidence that something had happened is that they were changed by it. The disciples were changed. Uh, Their character altered. Their direction in life changed. Uh, you, you hear stories of people like Thomas and James, notorious skeptics who never really bought the idea that Jesus was the Messiah, much less the Son of God. These people become convinced that he was exactly that. And they become leaders of the early church with that message. And, and, and kind of weak need people like Peter and Mark, Peter who denied Jesus so readily, Multiple times. And Mark, who at the time of Jesus' arrest ran from the the garden so as to avoid us being tackled by the the temple guards, actually had his own cloak torn off, ran naked just to get away. These two guys now stay behind in the teeth of the Neronian persecution and they're willing to go to a brutal death without ever denying that Jesus is Lord. Happily, going to their death, declaring that Jesus is indeed the Lord over all of life. Enemies of Jesus, like Saul, who were encountered by Christ, the risen Christ, have their hearts turned. And as you know, Saul becomes who? Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles. Everywhere they went, these disciples told the story of this great gardener who had the power of life in himself. And they set their hands to continuing his restorative work until that coming day when he would renew all things upon his return. I can't stress enough that the gospel that the disciples preached in those early days is, was nothing like what you may have heard in recent days. These folks did not go around saying, hey, listen, consider Jesus Because he was a really great guy. Oh, you'd love to hang out with Jesus. You know, he was a lot of fun. Um, They did not go around saying, contemplate Jesus. Because he had these very sublime teachings that that we could all learn from. Fine ethical principles, some good self-help tips. You know, they did not go out selling Jesus' teachings. uh, nor, Nor did they say, hey, let's just circle up. And let's support each other and let's just sort of remember Jesus as this great historical figure. You know, let's sing Kumbaya together and just kind of feel that warm glow of thinking about the master as it used to be. That was not the message of the early disciples. Though Jesus was great company and his teaching was brilliant. And the circles of community he formed were like no other. Their message was, commit your life to Christ. Become his follower. Because we can tell you that the resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that he's got power. I mean, the kind we all need. The power to overcome sin and even death and to birth a whole new kind of life. That was the gospel message. Some of you are hearing this right now and you're saying to yourself inside, amen. I wish some of you'd say it out loud. But it's all right. We're the frozen chosen here sometimes. But you are. You're saying amen. You've been saying it as the choir's been singing, and the prayers have been offered all day because you know this to be true. Because Jesus has met you in some significant way in your life. You've felt your life being changed by him. You may not have sensed his presence every single day. You may have had some bad periods in your life. But ultimately... You have found his power to be real, his presence to be true for you. Others of you are thinking to yourself, it's a bunch of hooey. I don't know why they dragged me in here this morning. Will the guy up front ever stop talking? (laughs) Pretty soon, I'm going to. You'll be able to go to brunch. But there are also one or two here, I'm going to guess. Some of you may be even listening in uh, through the media today. Some of you are feeling a deep and rising sense of longing in your life. You would love it if it were possible for your sins to be forgiven. You have history. You've got some issues and stuff that you know about, maybe not everybody knows about, maybe nobody else knows about, that you would, you would love it if it was possible that somehow that could all be washed away and you could start over again like it was the first day of spring. And others of you, you're thinking to yourself, you know, this mortality thing, it's not going to make an exception with me. These aches and pains, this illness that's coming on. I know sooner or later the reaper's coming and that blade's got my name on it. And you're thinking, man, if it was possible that I could have assurance that even after I was a dead bunny, my life would really be made new. I would rise one day like Jesus rose. I'd be up for that. Some of you are thinking, I'm tired. I've been trying so hard by my own willpower to fix my life. I've been trying to make changes in my character. I just keep slipping back into the same old ruts. I've I've been trying to renew my family. Uh, My relationships over here start going the way. If it was possible to have a power from beyond me, that could really restore, recultivate, regrow myself and my my circles, I'd be interested in that. Dear ones, if you're of that last kind, the good news of Easter is the springtime has come. The power is for real, and it's available to you right now, this moment, here in this place, this very day. And I want to invite you to join me in a prayer today. If you're of that last part, if you're one of the first kind of people I talked about, you pray it too as an act of rededication. If you're one of the folks just wanting to go to lunch, hang in there a moment longer. And I want to invite us to pray together. And if you do offer this prayer, and you really mean it, and you want to tell me about that uh, or tell Eric about that after the service, we'd be honored to help you with some next steps. Let's bow our heads together as we come before God in prayer. God, I know that you are the gardener, that you are the one whose hands and strength and power my life needs. And, and so this very Easter, and in the name of Jesus, I surrender myself, I commit myself to the creative, restoring, resurrecting power that is in your hands. And all God's people said, amen, hallelujah, hallelujah, amen.